Vitrio Financial is proud to support Improving Alpha, innovation in investing, ESG and technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg. Vitrio helps allocators harness investment complexity to make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Gita Swami will join us. Her background, accomplishments, and current roles are immense, and we will let her touch on that shortly. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. This episode will be about innovation in ESG, where Gita has very valuable insight into the S, or social, particularly regarding diversity. Asset managers and owners, as well as companies, should be able to extract a great deal of value from Gita's work. Gita and I were both speaking at an ESG conference with world-leading academic thought leaders, investors, and practitioners, and I found her views to be quite thoughtful and worth sharing. We'll start with some background color, then discuss how companies, managers, and asset owners may apply her work to investing and finish with some advice. On that note, welcome, Gita. Thank you, Michael. Really, it's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to this podcast. Great. Let's start very briefly with your background and then shift into what you're currently focused on. Sure, thank you. So my husband has this running joke that if there's a job that I haven't done, it's probably not worth doing. But I have a bachelor's in technology, uh, master's and PhD in computer engineering, an MBA, and I recently got my JD. So as you can see, I cover the whole gamut there. I actually started life in R&D and moved into uh, management consulting at a firm called Booz Allen and Hammer, and then ended up moving from Booz Allen into creating, because I was doing a lot of innovation consulting at Booz Allen, uh, into creating new startups, helped found for four different companies, and then realized I really needed to get my MBA, went back, got my MBA, worked briefly at a venture capital firm called Matrix Partners, and then went to work for the Carlyle Group. And at some point during the crash of 2008, um, you know, I, I came back because we had just sold our fourth company and I didn't need to necessarily work in the market was a mess um, and started my fifth company, which did data and benchmarking for alternative assets. And as you know, through this process, one of the things I really found fascinating is I realized that we had massive social issues, which really we needed to solve at a public policy level. And while technology was a great enabler, there were fundamental challenges. And I found that as a woman entrepreneur looking for funding. And uh, um, so that's when I started getting interested in DEI. I mean, I'd always been a woman in fields which had very few men. But I think, you know, I was always treated wonderfully as an equal by the men I like to work with. So I didn't understand how there was so much conflict around this issue. And so this is, you know, at some point in that journey, um, we started a small nonprofit, which essentially was focused on doing DI better, because one of the things we found was that uh, people, um, you know, tended DI ended up being a word that inflicted a lot of pain rather than joy and collaboration. And we always felt it should be about joy and collaboration. So a lot of the insights that we will talk about today come from this uh, nonprofit we started 
to do a better job of what we call collective intelligence. I just prefer the word collective intelligence. And my work for the UN, you know, as a representative to Equals, which is a UN affiliate focused on SDG 5. Um, more recently, uh, I have actually, once I finished my JD, I started working for the government and actually with the Massachusetts State Senate as a senior legislative and policy advisor. And my day job is drafting legislation. Uh, but I still keep involved with a lot of these other projects as my time permits. Gita, but, you know, you mentioned, if, 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 um, why did you not find there was an issue, whereas many others did? Any um, thoughts? Well, yeah, so that's actually a very good question. It isn't that I didn't find there was an issue. It was that I chose not to focus on it. Uh, until it got to the point where I couldn't ignore it. So, you know, I went to an undergraduate engineering school where we had six women and 300 guys in my class. Sorry, remind the listeners because they may not know which one. Oh, yeah. No, this was in India. It was a school called the Indian Institute of Technology. Yeah, IIT. IIT, the MIT of America. Uh, Yeah, of of India. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we have a competitive exam to get in. You know, it's it's one of these. Oh, totally. it's a brutally tough school to get into. I didn't pay attention to it and until I landed up as a, as a freshman and I realized we had six women in my class and 300 guys. <laughs> right. And, and by, the way, right? By, by the way, by the way, just so you're aware, so when I was a PM at Soros in 98 to 2000, like we would always look at people who were senior in tech companies in 98 to 2000 at Soros who were from IIT as like, the MIT of India or, or the world, meaning comparable to MIT, but not US, meaning it was immensely impressive. It was actually, MIT helped set it up. It was uh, uh, set up originally as a joint collaboration with the US uh, US government, MIT and, and the Indian government. And that's actually, probably why they had such excellent standards. It, so I, you're, you know what, in 20 five years, you're the first person who have told me that. And I never realized that and knew that until now. Super oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know. It was, yeah. So um, anyway, so here you are in there and you could focus on the fact that you were different or you could just go in and do your best. And to be fair, at least in the IIT system, it was, um, you know, if you and it was very quantitative and very, quote unquote, you know, analytic merit based. You know, we were doing engineering and sciences and math. And uh, so if you were able to get the grades and show that you could stand on the same footing, they accepted you. You know, engineers, at least from in my experience, could be very welcoming if you could go in there and show them that you would earn their respect, or at least that's what I felt about it. Um, so, so, and so, so, so a, tr- a meritocracy, a true meritocracy. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that's the whole point. I'm always worried about using the word meritocracy because there's so many different dimensions of excellence, Right. And just being good at math is not necessarily the only dimension of being a human being. You know, sometimes it's much more about the EQ side rather than IQ side. Well, IITs were a culture where the IQ was important. Um, I don't think the EQ stuff was uh, necessarily that, you know, that was not part of that tribe, if you will. Sure. And so when we got into pure math, there was no problem whatsoever. We were just as good. Uh, I think the challenge started when you got, started getting, when the shades of gray started playing in, 
when it wasn't just about being good at math. And girls are just as good at math. The problem with a lot of things is when the social norms start intruding into it, girls are who are smart enough to be good at math are smart enough to pretend they're not good at math. <laughs> Maybe it's in my head. <laughs> so I think that's when you started to notice and you said, oh my God, human beings are behaving like these funny tribes. Um, so, so, so I think that's the point at which, you know, I started to find that just being good at the math wasn't enough to get ahead. Um, you know, and it didn't matter. You could get 100 on a test. And my mother has a very interesting story. So she went to Harvard and she got she was getting a PhD in mathematics and they had a similar statistic back in the 60s. And she said they had six women in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. And she says the professor used to uniformly give all of us seats. It didn't matter if we got 100% on the exam, <laughs> they would get seeds. Sorry, the women. The women, absolutely. This was Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard back in the 60s. And uh, she says they went and they argued with the professor and he said, listen, you're all women, you should be happy to get seeds. <laughs> so I think social norms change over time, right? Hopefully. Um, you know, yes, hopefully, yes. Um, so, so I think, you know, from my perspective, it didn't, in the beginning, I could get away by pretending it didn't exist. And those differences did not exist. And that it was all about us getting, you know, doing well and being quote unquote a meritocracy. But then as life got more nuanced and multidimensional, you found that human beings tended to more and more revert to their herds, if you will to their comfort, to their familiarity. And that's when, you know, you start seeing the problem because you really want people with differences to be able to work well together, to respect their differences, et cetera. And there was a tendency to kind of retreat. And by the way, that happens even when things become tense, you know, I mean, you go into a company and, you know, even at a company level, when you have a turnaround and you're doing restructuring, suddenly you'll find people will herd and retreat into their little herds. And, and, and self-isolate almost demographically because there's so much anxiety and tension and the primeval instinct to be a tribal unit is so high. I, I think that's a good segue just because you're mentioning tribal units and the uh, propensity to uh, hibernate is not the right word, but uh, isolate. So we're both Columbia faculty and I'll never forget, if not the first thing we learned at Columbia Business School was the value of diversity. And regarding that, my sense is you have a very differentiated, but very rational and um, differentiated view on diversity. And perhaps you could expound on that to begin with. Diversity is in human beings, the human species survives because we are a species of collectives. It's not because we're the fastest runner or we're the most savage fighter or whatever else it is. It's because we work in groups. And it's this ability to have a community which keeps us, you know, makes us the apex predator. But the reason, you know, we work well as a community is because we have a collective intelligence. We all have different perspectives, right? Because if we were all identical, a single virus would wipe all of us out. There is a reason why evolution has made us different is we bring we, different things to the table. Gita, totally. It's why monocultures don't work. It's the value proposition of wisdom of the crowds, right? James Sorowacki's book. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head there. So we are meant to be different and we are meant to bring our differences to the table in a community and share our perspectives, right? And that's the notion of bringing, you know, that's beginning the notion of a collective intelligence, 
there's nothing wrong with diversity. Where diversity is built into our DNA and our evolution. I think the challenge is that we also have this competitive, competing tribalism. So we got a balance of our competing tribalism, which, you know, by the way, incidentally, you know, is, you know, is derived almost from fear and fear, greed, some of the negative emotions around self-protection or self-aggression. And with the fact that what sets us apart as a species is our collective, right? Um, and so the challenge with diversity is there's good diversity and there's bad diversity. Good diversity is collective intelligence. When we respect all our differences, we bring them to the table, we get the wisdom of crowds, right? And we have a good process for building consensus and agreement in it, all right? Bad diversity is conflict. And I think the problem a lot of times is people don't understand that you've got to distinguish. In fact, the science shows that diverse, well-functioning teams outperform everybody else. But diverse, badly performing, badly functioning teams, as in where there isn't respect, mutual respect and understanding and a good way of working together, actually underperform everybody else. So if you're not a good manager and if you don't have a good group dynamic, you're better off all being identical, which is why, you know, when you build, for instance, Silicon Valley startups, they've given up with trying to bring a greater collective intelligence. And they say, well, we'll get everybody the same so that when we tell people jump off the cliff, they'll all jump off the cliff without asking questions because we think identically. The problem that is that that also leads to a lot of groupthink and bad decision making, but that's a you know, separate story. It's about learning to make those differences. And that's what sets apart exceptional leaders. Exceptional leaders will bring different diverse stakeholders to the table. And when I say diversity, it's not just about, you know, the color of your skin or the color of your eyes or the gender you are. It's really much, much more elemental. There are multiple dimensions by which we are different. Some of it is because of our, yes, certainly our self-identity plays a part in it, but there's also our experiences and there is our, um, you know, our training or education. And all of these bring differences into our perspective. And we really want to look at people, you know, in terms of all the different ways in which they bring a new perspective to the table, right? So it's actually almost being more inclusive about diversity. And so we can so, go ahead. No, no, please go on, Gita. No, I was, I, I think, you know, when we, we, we continue the conversation, we can talk about how the choice to be very narrow on data sometimes limits us in understanding the differences and the potential for collaboration. So you're saying it's more multidimensional or um, it's not as transparent or black and white or binary as certain metrics that are often used. Yeah. And, and, and I think the problem with a lot of this, you know, there's this thing as bad. Uh, a computer scientist will tell you that if you collect data, data in a bad schema, you will get bad answers, right? Because you haven't segmented it properly. I think we have to learn to respect each other. And that's the important point that I'm bringing up is, and by the way, I'm not taking away from the fact that we have had historical injustice. Let's be honest and admit it. We've treated people very badly, but there is a completely separate, there are two separate issues that we tend to conflate in this entire debate. And one of them is rectifying historical injustice, but the other one, and that's a much more important one is creating a better future. And those two don't necessarily, you know, they have slightly divergent objectives and different stakeholders that answer to them, right? 
What we're talking about collective intelligence, we're talking about creating a better, more functioning human collective that has greater intelligence. And by the way, if I bring different perspectives, I will be more intelligent if I can get the intelligence to work together. The example that I use very often with people is, look, here's a very easy way to think of it. If I have a, Einstein or if I have Mozart, who's more intelligent? Well, the answer is, I don't know. Is it a music question or is it a physics question? It's the intelligence depends on what is the question you're answering. If it's a physics question, it'll be Einstein. If it's a music question, you know, Mozart's is more intelligent. So I said, okay, great. Now, who's more intelligent? A team with two Einsteins, a team with two Mozarts, or a team with one Einstein and one Mozart? I'm going to say oh. the team with one and one. Yes, exactly. Because they can answer both physics and math questions. Right. That's the beauty of bringing different perspectives. Now, there is a caveat here. If Einstein and Mozart don't fight, uh, keep fighting each other and don't respect each other, well, that team would be so caught up with its own dysfunction that it's never going to come up with the right answer, even though it is sitting within it. Right. And that's the beauty of good diversity right, or collective intelligence. It's when Einstein and Mozart respect each other, understand the valuable perspectives they're bringing and are able to work together to decide whose skills are going to be used. I completely agree. And again, not to, but again, I mean, this is quintessential James Sorowiecki, Wisdom of the Crowds, right? When the optimal answer is multiple well-informed decision makers and to your point who respect each other, right? Absolutely. So what's the solution? What do you propose? How do we make the world a better place? Ah, I'd love to do that, right? No, I think it's I think about we all us would, being but right. go on. Yeah. Sorry. No, I think, you know, when we are ruled by rational, respectful discourse, then we make better decisions. When we're ruled by hate and anger and suspicion and tribalism, we make worse answers. So part of it is, that's the thing to keep in mind is, it's we can't go take away from the fact that our evolution is still very primitive and and you know the stronger emotions always win because they're like a short circuit to the brain right which is why a lot of times in political campaigns the easiest cheapest trick in the book is to divide people right because it's amazing they all just automatically you know fear and greed are are so much more powerful than love and respect right and by the way, there's a reason for it, right? In the in, in primeval times, if you saw a saber-toothed tiger, you didn't want your brain sitting there and doing any analysis. You wanted it to go into emergency mode and react very strongly. The problem is we're no longer in primeval times. Our system still reacts the same way. So a lot of it is about, I've always seen it as a three-stage process. The three things that you need. You need boundary conditions. And to some extent, that's what the legal framework is. It's the boundary conditions in operating. You need to have that baseline of laws, which I call the stick, to say you're not going to exceed that. Then you need to have the carrots, which are the incentives, right? The rewards for being good, right? The rewards for being inclusive, the rewards for being, and, and to some extent, the rewards are built in because we have a greater collective intelligence. We, you know, if we can actually function better and get better results and create a bigger pie, there are rewards built into it. And finally, it's a lot about changing social norms you know, and that's the education process. So I think that changing a society requires a judicious set of carrots, sticks, and changing education, uh, which gets us to the point. But, you know, it's it's a slow process. It doesn't have instant instantaneous results, and it requires people to be rational and understand the problem 
and to agree that we all have a common aspiration to create a great country or a great world, right? And if we all want to reach that point, then this is the path to it. So I wish you were right, and we all had the aspiration to create a better, greater, better world. But I'm not sure that's true. But I don't. That's neither here nor there. I think that's a side point. But um, to your point, more importantly, I think there are two things that you've said that I think are remind me of my history and knowledge, which one is when I worked for George Soros, I think George's point was always, and his, so George had one of the largest foundations in the world. And to this day is, is one of the 10 largest foundations in the world, uh, the open society. And he, you know, he, in my view, he helped eliminate the, the Soviets and the communism and that whole thing. But George's point was um, get rid of the tribalism, get rid of the specific, let it be one common group of people. And I think that's very good for society. Ideally, it may be idealistic and not possible and not realistic. And the other is a few weeks ago on this podcast, we had Shai Davide, who's also a fellow professor of ours at Columbia. And he spoke about zero sum games. And his point is, don't look at everything in a zero sum, look at it as like expanding the pie <laughs> and you can make it better. And, and and it's not a zero sum game. And I think what you said reminds me of those two theses, but I'll let you comment on that. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it does get, and one of the things I realized is, we have a adversarial legal system. And so there's a tendency to go into these zero-sum games as opposed to creatively look for win-win solutions. Exactly. And, and, you know, and you see this in public good, right? This has always been the tragedy of the commons, right? If every person simply advocates for themselves, you'll never reach a global optimum. You'll never get public good. Right. It's the classic economist game. Right. Is that if everybody's just simply looking out for their own interests, we don't actually reach a good point in society. Right. And and, and so, by the way, and, and I will reiterate this point. I think education is a very important part of that, because the more thinking we make people. In fact, I think that this is, you know, the reason for education is not so much, oh, it's going to create jobs or whatever else it is, which is how most people look at it as a certification. The reason is we're creating better human beings. We're creating people who are thinking, who are rational, who ponder these nuances, who have self-reflection, etc. And so I think the more we educate people, the more we expose them to ideas, the more we make it easier for them to do, you know, the right thing as opposed to the easy, impulsive thing. The majority of people do want to make a better world. They do want to make everybody successful. They want to find a way to make all this work together. And I think that the notion of collective intelligence is something that will appeal to a lot of people. And frankly, you know, especially in this country, we are a country of huge differences because it's a country of immigrants. And so, you know, we are basically a mini microcosm of the world in some ways, simply because of the large amounts of immigration that occurs here. And I think here more than anything else, um, there's a need to harness that. By the way, I will give you another interesting fact. Higher diversity, also leads to higher innovation because innovation comes at the, 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 the confluence of multiple different idea streams. That's how things go out of the box, right? It's about thinking between the boxes. So that wait, 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 probably... wait, wait. I, I love that. I, I, and I, you're the first person I've ever heard say that. And it seemingly it would fit with the first day of Columbia Business School, but uh, any statistics you could share or studies or just, but I mean, it it wouldn't surprise me, but you're the first person I've heard say that. 
that's I know it's actually pretty well known in at least in uh, you know engineering R and D circles that uh, you know it's um, it, that 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 greater diversity leads to greater innovation. Companies with above okay, so here here's it's actually there's a report by BCG which I will send you a copy of. Companies with Excellent. above average diversity on their leadership teams are 19% more innovative. This is from a BCG survey. They have a 53% increase in ROE as compared to companies that are less, less diverse. Wait, wait, yeah, and yeah, let's, absolutely. And that's and and it doesn't surprise me, and that's great. And but let's let's code it at the beginning. So, and how are we defining diversity? Uh, well, it's bringing difference of, 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 of perspectives. Now, those differences in perspectives could be because of differences in self-identity, but they could also be because of difference in education or difference in uh, experiences. Your life experiences change you as well, right? Um, I think the important part is to recognize and value these differences. And by the way, we do recognize this. This is the funny part about it. So um, at Combinate, we designed this seven-layer tra training for you know, diversity training or rather collective intelligence training. And one of the things we, we said is you have to start with something people agree on. You shouldn't go into diversity training feeling as if you're going to be accused of bias and, you know, made to feel shame, you know, named and shamed or whatever it is. It's got to be something that's joyful. That's something you can relate to because we're only going to be successful and stay with people if we, we, we move with love and respect and joy and commonality. And so we said, OK, so what's the commonality? Well, any entrepreneur knows when you're staffing a company, you can't just have everybody be an engineer or everybody be a salesperson or everybody be a marketing person. You have functional diversity. So we already, already recognize that we need different kinds of skills to be successful, right? But then you take it at a different level and you say, well, hold on a minute. You don't just need, you know, all those different functional diversity. You also need network diversity. Think about it this way. If all of us only hired Columbia people, the pool of people that we'd be hiring from would be very, very small, right? So we need network diversity because it allows us to extend our reach and find great people and connect with great people uh, and a much larger pool of people. So basically the thing is that we actually do value diversity. We just don't realize it because it's not packaged in a way and explained in a way to us, which naturally relates with what we are already doing. So what, is, what do leaders, companies, asset owners, asset managers need to do to make the world a better place with respect uh, to diversity? Yes, I think that they should stop trying to solve the problem with just checkboxing because that's the problem. They try and solve the problem by saying, ah, you know what? I got one woman, check, I'm done, <laughs> right? And that, you know, and actually, I think it's also very limiting, frankly, because you might find more than one woman that's great or more than one minority that's great, right? I think you have to really look at it is what's the kind of collective I'm creating, right? What are the differences I'm bringing in? It's like cooking. You don't want to just put salt in there. You want to put a little bit of cumin and a little bit of Kashmiri red chili and a little bit of turmeric and ginger and garlic. I mean, you're creating, you know, as a manager, or as a leader, you're creating a beautiful little confection here. So it's about mixing those things in and understanding what's the difference. Hire people because they're bringing a unique perspective. I just got recruited to the board of a bank. It's a local, um, you know, mid-sized bank in the area. And But their reason for bringing in diverse perspective was they wanted to actually increase their customer base. The customer base is very narrow and very focused. And the point is, 
I, as, I, as I told them, I said, look, the issue is, do you understand your customer? Because if you're a bunch of only white men and you're trying to increase and get a more diverse set of customer base, do you really understand your customer base? So bringing that perspective helps you bring, understand what that customer group or that new segment you want is. That's a good business reason for bringing somebody in, as opposed to saying, checkbox, you're a woman, therefore I'm bringing you in because I have to meet the diversity quota. That's what I mean by valuing those differences, understanding what it's bringing in. So I think if I may paraphrase, you're saying the value in diversity is more from a is more a function of different perspectives, not checkbox or certain predefined boxes. Absolutely. It is a role of government to fix historical injustices and in, uh, what you would call institutionalized inequality. Right. That's that's the job of a government. But that's not necessarily the job of a corporation. Right. Um, the job of the corporation is much more about creating higher performing teams, right? In fact, I think the Supreme Court has said, you know, in, in one of their, their famous California ruling around women on boards, that it's not the job of governments to create efficiency, right, and better performance, right? And converse, it's not the job of corporations to fix social injustice. That's the job of the government. So I think to some extent, you know, you have to understand when you go back to those three things that you have to do to make this work, somebody is going to create the laws and that's the government, and that's their job. And somebody is going to create the carrots and the sticks and that's sort of a combination, the carrots or the incentives for doing the right things. But finally, at the end of the day, we're all going to also be educating ourselves and figuring out better ways to do things. Okay, so this has been an Fabulous, immensely interesting discussion, at least from my perspective. What haven't we discussed that that you think are super interesting, important, and that I should have hit on or we should have hit on? Well, I think that, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is one small part of this broader issue of looking at our the way we do business in a different manner, which is it's not just about a few dimensions right? So this is the story I'm saying. It's not just about profitability. It is about understanding all these externalities that we don't factor into our calculation. Wait, wait. And if I may interject, it's also not about ticking boxes. Absolutely. It's about achieving a goal, right? Meaning making, being a creative or having a better solution, resolution, profitability, views. Yeah, absolutely. And so let me just say the boxes have a purpose. It's like a scaffolding. You know, if you were so far away from it, and it's really hard for you to think the box is a way is like a scaffolding, but the box is not the building. So for instance, you know, when you look at you know, Wait, some yeah, of yeah. Boxes. Explain that. Explain that. Clarify that. Sure. I mean, you know, here's the whole point. A box is a very crude kind of way of looking at it, right? And you say, well, I haven't, um, you know, if you look at, you know, if you look at, if you're interviewing people and you're only interviewing white men, then you have to ask your questions. Well, wait a minute. Why am I not interviewing different people, right? But I don't hire somebody for not be for being a brown woman. I hire them because they're a great candidate. But the, if I'm consistently only looking at a certain kind of demographic, that means something that should prompt me to say, I got to do better, but it's not the answer. It's, as I said, it's scaffolding to your decision-making. We all need tools, but the tool is not the answer. If the answer is judgment, 
And we confuse crude tools, which is what checkboxing is, with the final answer. And the final answer is making better judgment about being inclusive, about creating better and more diverse teams with greater collective intelligence. That's our objective. Yeah, and um, to dumb it down, I think our listeners are fairly intelligent. It reminds me of when you and I were on a panel a few weeks ago, right? And the joke was there were a few different Mikes or Michaels on the panel, right? But to your point, we're quite different and our backgrounds are quite different. So though if you were saying, oh, well, all three are Mikes, right? Or Michaels, it's there's no diversity. Actually, we you know, we have quite different perspectives, right? Absolutely. You must understand why you're bringing the next Michael in or why you're not bringing a Gita in, right? Whatever, exactly. Whichever way it is, all those categorizations are just things that force you to ask the question in terms of, should I be looking broader? What am I missing? What is the perspective I haven't incorporated in here, right? And as I said, it's, you know, they, they make this thing, when you learn painting, you learn brushstrokes, right? You learn perspectives. It's all very mechanical when you first start learning painting. But then you have people that go off and paint beautiful paintings, right? Now, the thing is, you can't confuse the brushstrokes with the artistry. We're looking to learn the artistry. That's the beauty of collective intelligence. We want to create great, high-performing teams that are maximally effective. But the brushstrokes for us is learning that, okay, you know, there is these checkboxes that help us understand, have we drawn this correct? Now, I'm sure there are people like Van Gogh who never needed to learn the brushstrokes or go to school or whatever else, but the majority of us have to start with some simple scaffolding thing. And that's all these checkboxes are. They're something that start the dialogue, but they're not the answer. Well, okay. First of all, even Van Gogh had to learn the brushstrokes, whether he had them in Implicitly or did them early or quickly. But on that note, I don't think we can do better than that. And um, as a huge opera arts theater um, lover, I think that's a great way to end this. So, Lakita, I, I, we'd like to thank you for your fabulous discussion and sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. And um, we hope listeners have a better appreciation for how one of the world's more thoughtful ESG academics is, is thinking about this and 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 how you all may benefit from it and this this is your host hope, hoping you'll join us again for our next episode where i speak with another thought leader and who will provide insight into improving alpha v innovation until then stay well and thank you again gita that was fabulous thank you thank you for listening to improving alpha innovation in investing esg and technology sponsored by vidrio financial with Vidrio Financial, asset managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O dot 
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial and or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.